If you don't have a Bible with you, I believe there are Bibles scattered around. I hope this is not false advertising. There are usually Bibles scattered around through the seats, and someone can flag you can flag someone down if you need one and be happy to pass one to you. Uh, we, we'd also love to give you a copy. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you just to take one with you. And we'd love to, the chance to talk with you later about anything you find there. We're going to be back in Colossians. A letter from the Apostle Paul, probably written while he was in prison to a church that he had never been to. And right out of the gate, we saw some of this last week at the beginning of chapter 1, and we move into even more of it this week. We, we see Paul trying to celebrate the glory of Jesus in, in words that just seem not to match up to what he's trying to describe. It's almost like he's a guy who's just stuck with the limitations of what human language can accomplish. Paul's got a reason, though, for starting here. It's that he's concerned that maybe this church is tempted to find their identity in something besides Jesus, to supplement him somehow. I imagine that that's just been a natural tendency from day one. There's never been a period in the church's history where we haven't been tempted to change something about what we offer to the world, to change our, our understanding of what it is Jesus has to be and to do if we're to, if we're to have what we need. And I imagine it's just as true today as it was in Paul's time. I know that a hundred years ago or so, the main thing that got changed up, it seemed like, was, was that the nature of what humans needed seemed outdated in the way that Paul talks about it. It was a time of great optimism and progress, and science was discovering things that, that even a generation earlier had never been imaginable. Things seemed, the societies themselves seemed reformable in ways that had never seemed imaginable before. And, and with that came a sense that the description of humans as people weighed down by sin who ultimately stand condemned under the wrath of God, just seemed primitive. It seemed not worthy of an enlightened and progressive people. And so the church adapted its message in kind. Jesus now no longer offered some sort of satisfaction for divine wrath. Jesus was a teacher, someone who showed us what it looked like to live better, more fulfilled and happy lives. What the church was to offer was not a pathway to individual reconciliation with God, but, but a sort of engine for changing the structures of society, for getting rid of poverty, for getting rid of war. One of my favorite descriptions of this impulse that, that was all through the church in America and Europe a hundred years ago came from a guy named H. Richard Niebuhr. He, here's how he summed up the mood of that time a hundred years ago the way that, that the church described the need for Jesus. He said, it's as if they were all taken up with a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Jesus is sort of moral guru. Now, 100 years later, I don't know that that's so much our problem. To me, it seems like what we're more tempted to in terms of replacing Christ or supplementing him, what we're more tempted to is getting rid of the notion that salvation comes only through Jesus. So if, if 100 years ago the problem was what Jesus had to offer, that, it's, that the, the way the New Testament talked about it seemed outdated, now what seems outdated, I think, is the sense that Jesus offers something you can't get anywhere else. 
I remember that probably the first time I ever became self-aware as a Christian, as a Christian among other options, where lights came on and I realized that I had one view out of a whole bunch of different possible religious views. It was a class that I took on religious pluralism in college and began to read about the different religions in the world and what they, what they thought and what they believed and what they, how they answered the same questions that my Christianity was designed to answer. And I began to realize, I, I began to just be impressed, I think, with the bigness of the world. I think through immigration in the last 50 years, we've come to know up close and personal people who practice other religions, and we see that they're not freaks for the most part. They, they seem nice and friendly and rational people just like anyone else. Can it really be that all these people who, who are, are holding to other religions are just wrong? Is there really anything distinctive that can be found only in Jesus? That, I think that's probably our biggest problem. Paul, I think Paul's instructions to the Colossians in chapter 1, where he's trying to encourage them to be content with Jesus only, to hold to him in the face of lots of competing options, are actually not just timeless, but especially relevant for us today. Paul's readers were asking the same questions we are. Is Jesus the only one? Is Jesus even that necessary? For that reason, I think if we look carefully at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23, we're going to get something that we need to hear. I wonder if you would stand with me now in honor of God's word. Uh, it, we're going to begin reading from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and read through uh, verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. There are the Bibles. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord from Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. You can be seated. What we've got here is one of the most important texts about Jesus in all of the Bible. I don't know that I have ever, as a, as a preacher or teacher of the Bible, I don't know that I've ever been more aware of how limited words are for capturing what this means and how it matters. But I think that the main point here, if we come away with nothing else, Paul's main point is that Jesus, and only Jesus, is sufficient as a Savior for our for, for our specific problem. But he's so sufficient 
that there's no need to supplement him with anything else. Jesus and only Jesus is sufficient, but he is so sufficient that there's no need to add anything to him. Paul, last week, what we looked at was a prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossians. And the end of that prayer is Paul's thanksgiving, or Paul's urging and his prayer for them that they would have thankful hearts, that they would give thanks for the gospel. That's verses 11 and 12, or 12 rather, 13 and 14. And at the end of that prayer, what he's hoping that they will give thanks for is being transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. And verse 14 says, it's in Jesus that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Everything after that, beginning in verse 15, especially verses 15 through 20, it's really just Paul going off on the concept of Jesus as the one in whom there's redemption, there's forgiveness of sins. What he's trying to do is convince you that Jesus can make good on this promise of redemption. He wants to give us a sense of what it is about Jesus that makes him worthy of trust as Redeemer. What it is that makes him an acceptable Savior. I guess what he's doing in verses 15 through 20 is something of a riff on the notion of the identity of Christ as forgiver of sins. A riff, right? Isn't, I hope I'm using the term right. It's when like a really good guitar player just takes a theme and just goes with it and expands on it and adapts it and, and takes it into places that you might not have imagined it before. If it's what I'm thinking of, it's, a, it's something I'm really familiar with after listening to various riffs last night until about 11.30, being only a mile away from the Vanderbilt Stadium where the Edge was doing his thing. A riff is when you take a theme and you develop it, you play it out, you show variations on it. It's bluegrass, it's jazz, it's some of the best music we know. I think that Paul, I think Paul is riffing on the notion of Jesus as the one in whom there's redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he's doing it in verses 15 through 20 through what some think maybe was an old hymn that he's really just quoting here and and sort of tweaking to his own purposes. If you look close at this hymn, You look at verses 15 through 17, they're like verse number 1. The first verse is all about Jesus as God. It's Paul making the case that Jesus is everything that God is. You might say Jesus is the Lord of creation. Then in verses 18, 19, and 20, you get verse 2 of this old hymn. It's, It's Jesus as not just the Lord of all things, the Lord of history, but the Lord of redemption the one in whom salvation is possible. And when you wed those two together, you get Paul's case for trusting in Jesus. He is one who provides salvation that no one else could provide. He provides something that only God himself could provide. That's where we're headed. So first, in verses 15 through 17, Paul celebrates Jesus as everything that God is. And you get the sense that Paul's grasping at almost anything tangible from our experience to help us get a handle on this notion. It's so far beyond us, the notion that a guy who walked the earth just a generation before this was written could actually be, in some serious way, God himself, the reason for the existence of anything and everything. That's so far beyond us. I get the sense that Paul is just sort of grasping at anything that he can use to help make this tangible. And when he does that, he uses the concept of Christ as the creator of everything that we see. Now, before we get too far on that point, I want to I raise something that you may have already even noticed in verse 15. Verse 15 calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. And here I'm saying that I think Paul is 
arguing that Jesus is over everything, that he's actually God himself. But this first verse of the hymn makes it sound like he's part of creation, not God, but something God made. I think one of the reasons that we sort of our knee-jerk is to think that that's what firstborn here means is because that's what typically what we mean by that word. It's, it's the first one of a set. It's the first person born into a family. And that doesn't make the, the first child any different from the second child in terms of their being. They're still just children. They're just, it's a, it's a chronological thing. They happen to come out first. That's what we think of it. And, and, and on that logic, you get groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses or like the ancient church group called the Arians who were condemned in one of the earliest church councils, like what we just read, the Nicene Creed. Jesus as, yes, elevated, but just the first of the things that are made. Here's why I don't think that's how we should read this verse. The, the, the word can be used that way. Here the meaning is something different, something that's probably lost on us in a culture where hierarchy is much less of a factor. You know, the first being the firstborn in a family today typically doesn't carry that much weight. But in Paul's day, to be the firstborn was to be the heir. It was to be the one for whom the family existed and its wealth continued. It's the one who reigned, in a sense, over the family. Firstborn was much more about rank, in other words, than it was about chronological order. This word used here in verse 15 is much closer then to the way that the same word gets used to describe the Messiah in Psalm 89. In Psalm 89, talking about the the king who would come from the line of David to reign over his throne forever, talking ultimately about Jesus, here's what Psalm 89 says in verse 27. I will make him, talking about Jesus, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It's about status. It's about rank, not about chronology. It's a title that explains how Jesus relates to creation, that he's sovereign over all of it, that everything that follows in verses 16 and 17 explains why he's sovereign over it. I don't know how we can understand these next verses that come after verse 15 if we understood Jesus to be just part of creation. Because what you're going to see is that Jesus is not just over it. He is the reason it exists. He is the creator, and he's the one who holds it all together, like the glue that sustains everything that we know. No, it's, it's not that he's part of it. It's that he is over all of it, and it exists for him. So, to get more specific, when Paul wants to show that Jesus is everything that God is, he turns to classic Old Testament ways of capturing what it means to be God. He describes God, and here he describes Jesus as the creator and the sustainer of the biggest things in our experience. The biggest things we can imagine are our world, the world that we live in, and then the powers over the world, the things that control it, that seem to be in charge of it. Those are the biggest things in our experience, right? So if you want to try to make tangible the really abstract idea of a God that you can't see, what you do is you describe that God as responsible for the biggest things that we can imagine. That's exactly what the Old Testament does when it describes God, and that's what Paul's doing here. So, so thinking back to the Old Testament, think about Job, some of those classic passages in Job, where Job has finally reached his breaking point, and he's starting to push back against God for why God would allow him to suffer in the way that he has. And God's answer to Job is simply to say, where were you? Where were you when I created everything? When I, when I set the oceans in place and said, you're going to come this far, and you're not going to come any further. He, just, he identifies himself, his bigness, his sovereignty, by the fact that he created everything that Job knows. 
The Psalms do this over and over too. Think of Psalm 104 that we prayed from just this morning. Celebrates him as the one who planted the deeps and then decided that they would go into these valleys and that, that mountains would come up over here. The one who was in charge of everything and all of its details. Other Psalms emphasize God's power over the powers of the world. Not only is he responsible for everything that's here, he's responsible for the things, the entities that control it all. So we talk about, they talk about the kings of the earth that just rise and fall at the will of God. They talk about the other kings of the, of the earth as nothing more than grasshoppers. Think of Isaiah 40 here or Psalm 33. When the Old Testament wants to talk about God and make that abstract idea concrete for us, it does it by talking about him as creator and as ruler over even the powers of the world. And now Paul, wanting to make tangible an abstract idea that the, that the same God who made everything was actually in this person that people knew and had dinner with just a generation earlier, he applies the same categories. Verses 16 and 17 say that by him, by Jesus... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things you can see, things you can't see. Not only were everything, was everything created by him, but he's over even the things that rule the earth. Thrones, dominions, rulers, or authority. Everything goes back to Jesus. Verse 17 sums it up. He was before all things, and now in him all things hold together. He's fully God. He's everything that God is because he's creator and he's sustainer. He is the only reason that anything exists. Now stop and think. Do your best here to connect with the bigness of this claim. Philosophers have always been fascinated with the question of existence. Why is there something here at all? Why is there something and not nothing? Why, when we... When we go to bed at night and wake up in the morning, are we even the same person and have the same memories intact? And why, why are, what does it mean for other people to be here, to be able to know and relate to? What, what even are other people? These, these kinds of questions are the, are the things that philosophers make careers out of, right? Playing out these questions of existence. Here, Paul is saying the reason there's something rather than nothing, the reason that this world exists is Jesus. He's before all things. So no matter how much we've advanced in this era of incredible scientific accomplishment. No matter how much we learn more and more about the origins of the world and, and, and where everything came to be, no matter how much we might know more about the big bang that sends everything out and exp- expanding away from itself, no matter how much we know about that, we will have nothing. We have no insight whatsoever into what was there before, into why some bang happened to begin with. We still have no insight based on science into why there's something and not nothing. Paul's answer is that what's behind the material world is Jesus. When God gave Moses his name, he simply said that he is, I am. He is existence. He is the reason for things. But it doesn't stop there. We're told that in Jesus all things hold together. This means... That every basic fact of the natural order continues to be true because Jesus orders it to continue to be true. You get really specific scientists out there. One guy quoting one author. Without Jesus, the implication of this passage is without Jesus, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. And planets would not stay in their orbits. 
The same goes for the most powerful forces that we can imagine. It's the most powerful they could imagine that we could imagine. What Paul's saying is that apart from Jesus, you get no Egypt, you get no Assyria, you get no Babylon, from Persia to Greece to Rome, from Caesar to Nero. None of it exists apart from him. In our day, we might say you get no Mark Zuckerberg, you get no Steve Jobs, you get no Barack Obama or whoever else without Jesus deciding he's going to continue to give them breath. All this represents Paul's way of helping us connect with the truth that Jesus is God. But that's only half the story. What he's got to do now, having, connect, having helped us to connect on that front, what he does in verse 2 of the hymn is he's got to help us see why it's so important that God would become man, that he would actually leave whatever existence, whatever existence was like before and enter into this world in human flesh. That's what he's got to do. Why is it important that Jesus is God for his role as redeemer? That's what Paul starts in verse 18. He changes gears here. He says that this same Jesus, the same one who's the Lord of creation, the reason everything exists, he's also Lord over the church. He's its head, its source of being and direction, the the thing that guides it all and, and the reason that it still exists. He's the head over the church. He's the firstborn over the dead. Just as he was firstborn over creation and reigns over it, the reason that it exists, the one to whom and for whom are all things, so now in the church... He is its firstborn over the resurrected community, the new creation. He's Lord of the original creation and the new creation. That's Paul's point in verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, here's the question. Here's the interesting part. Verse 19 gives us the reason that Jesus is supreme over the new creation, over the church and, and the resurrected community, those who will one day stand with him on the other side of the grave. The reason that he gets to serve and is preeminent in that role, the reason he can save anyone at all, verse 19 says, for the reason is that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The connection Paul's making is that for him to save us, he had to be God. God had to dwell in him for his role to be successful. That's a huge claim that has all kinds of important implications. The question is, why, did, why was salvation such a tall order that only someone who was actually God in flesh could pull it off? That's the question. Paul's making that claim in verse 19, calling Jesus the Lord of the new creation, and that the reason he was able to do that is that all of God's fullness dwelled in him. Why? Well, nothing describes in this passage what's gone wrong from the time that Jesus created the world to the time that he entered it to recreate all things. But the image of these verses with this language in verse 20 about reconciliation, about making peace, the image that you get out of these verses is an image of a world that's at war, of some sort of epic conflict between good and evil, between God and the things that God has made. That's the image that you get. Why God, who's described in the earlier verses as as the creator and the only sustainer, would continue to uphold, to sustain a world that was rebelling against him, why he would allow that to continue to happen as the one in whom it all held together is a mystery we'll never get past. It's something we chalk up to divine grace. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. What we're told here is that he, the high king, the one who created all things, the one for whom are all things... The offended party himself 
takes unilateral action to make peace. The offended party, the high king himself against whom the rebellion was taking place, comes into the world that he owned, that he created, that he held together to make peace unilaterally. That's the image of these verses. It had to be unilateral if any restoration was possible. Any, any sort of reconciled relationship was possible because treason had already been committed against him. Those that he came in to save were already guilty and past saving themselves. This is a very different world, the world of verse 20, of where reconciliation and peace have to be made between God and the things that he made. It's a very different world from any kind of conflict that we can imagine getting resolved. Maybe the, 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 most, the closest analogy we can even think of in our minds is maybe the American Civil War, where you had two powers engaged in a conflict over the identity and control of this world, this section of the world. Now, in those, when that war comes to an end, it's able to come to an end by basically an agreement to just let bygones be bygones. They've set down their weapons and they go their separate ways. One of the most interesting books I read in recent years is a book guy, uh, by a guy named David Blight on what it, what it took to reconcile Americans north and south after the war. And what he argues is that really to make it happen, they had to agree not to even talk about what they were fighting for. They had to, they had to agree to focus on the shared experience that they had in the war, on the shared sacrifice and courage and these sorts of things. They couldn't talk about the issues themselves or they would have never been able to get back together. Well, that may have worked in the Civil War. But in this war that's described in verse 20, that, that can't happen. There's no just pretending like there was no issue behind this conflict. Treason had been committed. And to allow that treason to go unpunished would be to justify any future treason, as if it just didn't matter. God couldn't let that happen. He would stop to be God if he did. Far from looking the other way, far from agreeing to just forget about what this conflict meant, this high king makes peace by his own blood. He places himself under just judgment for the sake of those who had been his enemies. And that's where Paul brings us to a head in verse 20. The reason that this redemption, this new creation, was only possible if the fullness of God dwelled in him is that no human had the right to make this kind of reconciliation. All humans stood equally condemned by their decision to rebel against God. If they were to have, if any of them, were to have any hope, it was going to have to come from someone outside of them coming in to make peace unilaterally. The fullness of God had to dwell in him for any hope to be had because this was a job no human had the right or the ability to do. And that's why a better, more suitable mediator was necessary to end this hostility. Verses 15 through 20, you could summarize those as Paul's case for Christ as the perfect mediator to end this hostility. Mediator is one who goes between two sources that are at odds with each other. Maybe you've been following the NFL lockout situation. The, the, the owners and the players are now sitting with this mediator, this judge who's there to hear both sides and to do what he can to try to bring them back together. Well, the remarkable thing about this picture Paul has painted for us, and, and, and the reason that, that human analogies all fall short, this is outside of anything in our experience, is that the mediator is also himself the offended party who sets aside what is rightly his, decides not to demand it of the other party in the dispute, and pays what they owed to him himself. 
Jesus is the perfect mediator and the only one who could have pulled it off. This, ultimately, is why the church has insisted that Jesus had to be God. No human, moral exemplar, though he may be, could ever provide the solution to the human problem of sin. That's why Athanasius, one of the church's most important teachers in this early battle over whether or not, how to define Jesus and whether he was God or not, that's why he insisted he had to be. And these were his words. This is Athanasius from a a very important book called On the Incarnation. He said, What, or rather who, was it that was needed for such grace and such recall as we required? Who saved the word of God himself, who also in the beginning had made all things out of nothing? For he alone, being word of the Father and above all, was in consequence both able to recreate all, and worthy to suffer on behalf of all and to be an ambassador for all with the Father. Only this Jesus, Athanasius' point and Paul's point, is fit to serve as a mediator between God and man. That's the point of the hymn. Then Paul drives it home. In verses 21 through 23, having set Jesus up as one in whom there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins, because he's both God and perfect mediator making peace through the blood of his cross. Because of that, Jesus is also the only possible redeemer. That's Paul's point in verses 21 through 23. Here he shows us one of the most remarkable and and most mind-boggling truths about the gospel, and that is that this same Lord who's created everything that is, the same one who we're told here is going to reconcile all things to himself in heaven and on earth, the same Lord who's going to recreate everything, also deals with individuals, with each individual heart that is turned against him, if they have any hope at all, have to come to him one by one through his grace, being transferred from this kingdom of hostility into the kingdom of Jesus. That's verses 21 through 23. Paul reminds these Colossians, going from this universal kind of language back to addressing them personally, he says, and you... You once were alienated and hostile in mind. You belonged in the midst of this hostility that could only be solved when Jesus made peace. But now, you've experienced God's unilateral grace. A grace that reaches into your rebellion while you're running the other way and brings you back into reconciliation. And God has done this through the death of Jesus so that he could present them as perfect. Verse 22 present them as holy and blameless and above reproach, even though they were alienated, even though they were hostile and had committed evil deeds, because of what Jesus has done now, they can be presented as if they hadn't, as if they'd never done anything wrong. That's the salvation accomplished by the God-man, made personal in the lives of these specific believers. And all of this, in verses 21 to 23... This description of very individual personal salvation, it's all building to one really big caveat. Verse 23, Paul says, If, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. They've got to continue in this faith not some other faith, not shifting from this gospel to some other gospel, not replacing it or supplementing it with some other source of hope. 
Now, we're going to get, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to get into much more detail about what their temptation was, what false teachers were there trying to lure them away from trust in Jesus. But apparently it had something to do with with teachers encouraging them. They had to observe holy days and certain fasts. They had to to deny themselves in certain ways. They had to seek after spirits as intermediaries between them and God, almost some sort of astrology. It almost sounds like astrology in some ways. They were being tempted to supplement what Jesus had offered with these other sources of hope. That was their temptation. And Paul's saying, not only is Jesus able to provide salvation, he is the only one who can provide it. And it'll only be true. This peace that's accomplished is only going to hold true for you if you don't go running after one of these other options. Now, that's a message that we're confronted with in our own way today, I think. It's still at times hard to hear. I think there are a couple reasons that in the last couple minutes, I think there are a couple reasons that we struggle to swallow Paul's insistence on Jesus' uniqueness as the only possible source for redemption. I've already mentioned one of them, and that is that it just seems outdated, if not offensive, to hold that Jesus is the only one who can provide what we need. For some of us, it might be a philosophical problem, and, and, and that's a problem I'd love to talk out over, over coffee sometimes. But I think for maybe even more of us, it's, it's not just a knee-jerk philosophical reaction, but just this, this sense that we know people who have other religious beliefs, and they seem okay to us. They seem, they seem sincere and good, and, and it seems hard to believe that, that in the great big world that's out there with all of its options, this is the only one. Why couldn't redemption be found in some other sincere source? And I think Paul's message gives us all the answer that we need. It has everything to do with what we need, with what salvation has to look like if, we're, if our problems are to be solved. The reason that Jesus is the only one we can hope in has everything to do with how big our problems are and the fact that they're problems that only a God-man could solve. If what we needed was simply an example of how to live better, if we needed an inspiration to be all that we could be, God could have sent somebody else. If we needed more insight into how to live, God could have sent another lawgiver. He could have sent another Moses or, or someone like Muhammad. That's basically what Muhammad represents in Islam. Someone, a prophet sent from God to explain more clearly what it looks like to live in a way that pleases God. If that's what we needed, God could have sent somebody else. If what we needed was inspiration to be all we could be, to find some sort of self-knowledge, to progress towards self-fulfillment, to be our best self, then he could have sent another figure like David, someone with amazing insight into what it is to be human, whose psalms just capture so much about, uh, tell us so much about ourselves when we read and think about them carefully. Or he he could have sent a Buddha-like figure who helps you get in touch with who you are and get free from the distractions of this material world. He could have sent someone like that if what we needed was self-fulfillment. Ultimately, if that's what we need, you go to Borders, if you can find one, and you, f- you find a book with a method that works for you. But the New Testament teaches that we need a lot more than that. We don't need better models. What we need is transformation. The problem is that we don't know how to do right, but that we know we've already failed to do what we know we should do. The problem is not that we need 
more clarity about how to live, but that we need a solution to the law we've already broken and and that we know we've already broken. The problem isn't self-alienation or some sort of angst about our identity or broken relationships. The problem is the fundamental brokenness that all of those things are only shadows of, a brokenness between us and our Maker that hangs over our head like a cloud unless we have someone reaching down through it to pull us up. What good, in other, in other words, is any sort of self-fulfillment in this life if life is just a breath and death is still waiting on the other side? If there had been some way to solve the problem of death, some other way, don't you think that God would have claimed it? The reason that God himself enters into the world that he made on a rescue mission is that it was a mission that only he was fit to fulfill. And if that's true, then any other source promising some sort of hope has to ultimately be empty. The only peace to be had was a peace that was made by the blood of Christ. He was good enough because we couldn't be good enough. He endured and conquered death for us so that we wouldn't have to die. He paid the demands of holy justice, His own justice, so we could go free. I think there's another reason that it's hard for us to be content with the salvation offered in Jesus that Paul has summarized here. It's not just that we wonder whether or not redemption is available in other sources. It's also that we, we just have self-reliance so deeply ingrained in us. It just comes so naturally to, that, to us that we should have to add our own performance to whatever it is that Jesus has supplied. I was reading a book by C.J. Mahaney with some friends earlier this week, and, and he, he identifies three main sources that we normally go to when we supplement what Jesus offers on the cross. Three main signs that we don't trust the cross in the way that we should. The first one is what he calls subjectivism, which means basing our view of God on our changing feelings and emotions. Our feelings come and go, don't they? I mean, we, the way that we feel about the world could be shaped by how the traffic was on the way into work that morning or by whether or not you had good interactions with your spouse or whether your kids are, are, uh, are, are being obedient uh, lately or whether or not you get a, some, sort of, some sort of sharp word spoken to you when you get at the office that day. It, it, there's so many little things that change how we feel. But what we're tempted is to assume that our standing with God, how close we are to Him, is, is shaped by how we how we have experienced the world that day, by whether or not our feelings are good or bad. I'm, I'm so tempted to this, and I'm not even that emotional of a person. But when, when I feel like things are going well, and I feel good about my job performance, I feel closer to God. When I don't feel good about my job performance, I'm wondering whether God loves me, or is He even there? Ultimately, God is close to us because He's pitched His tent among us. He, is, he has identified Himself as Emmanuel, as God with us, because in Jesus, all the fullness of God chose to dwell. That doesn't shift based on whether you feel good that day or not. It's an unchanging, established reality that you've got to learn to live through if you live a cross-centered life. Another one he mentions is legalism. It means basing our relationship with God on our performance. How we do in life is what determines whether God loves us or not. 
There's all kinds of telltale signs of this one. We're all subject to it. We're all Pharisees at heart, whether we recognize it or not. If we, if we get flustered when others don't treat us like we think we deserve, we take pride in comparing our accomplishments with those of others. We get angry at God when things don't go our way as if he owes us something better than what he's giving us. We get angry at others when they fail to meet our standards. These are telltale signs that we think our value is tied directly to our performance. They're telltale signs that we have a resilient belief that we're not beyond our ability to save ourselves. As if it it didn't take God in Christ entering the world and dying our death because we were already too far gone to do anything about it. The third one that he mentions is condemnation. That means being more focused on our sin than on God's grace. We slip into this when we not not simply when we feel guilty about sin. There's a certain kind of sorrow over sin that we should have that should drive us to appreciate the grace of God even more. But there's a certain kind of guilt that weighs down on us so hard that we can't see through it to see the grace of Christ triumphing over it. This condemnation that we're prone to makes us feel as if we're too bad for Jesus' salvation to cover us. Maybe it's enough for someone who's not quite as bad as we are, but it won't cover us. Don't you see, though, that when we, when we give in to guilt, what, we're, what we are doing is saying that the amazing truth of Jesus as God made flesh who gave his life and made peace through his own blood isn't enough to cover something we could do in our own lives. Don't you see how you devalue the cross of Christ when you give in to guilt? Ultimately, Paul is calling us here to rest in Jesus because he's the one who created everything. He holds it all together. And as the one who created everything and holds it all together, he is in a unique position to cover the sins that have afflicted all of us. He stands in a position that he only stands in, a position in which he can offer us redemption. Paul's given us this portrait so that we could spend a lifetime meditating on Jesus as the one in whom there is rest for our souls. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of the new creation. And for that reason, he is the only one who's worth trusting. Will you pray with me? We thank you, Father, for the unilateral action by which you have made peace with us through the blood of your Son. That's not something we could have thought up. It's certainly not something we deserve. It's something that even as those who claim to cling to it, even those who who do cling to it, we struggle to realize it and its implications for us. And so what we ask for is more faith, a greater and more full more comprehensive rest in the grace that's provided to us in Jesus. Would you help us, we pray, to trust him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.